Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Michael Devine, who goes as M.I. Devine, who is the author of Warhol's Mother's Pantry, Art America and the Mom in Pop. Michael, thanks for being here with me. Thanks for having me. I'm hoping you could start by talking a little bit about how this book came together, how these sort of collections of essays and text came all together. Yeah, it's it's kind of a weird book, right? Um, you know, one of the things I guess I claim about pop, which I, I hate to define, but I do make some kind of claims about it, is that I think it's about more about then than now. It's about the past. It's about reshaping the traditions we're given. Um, and that introduces a lot of ideas uh, about repetition and things like that. And um, that actually is also the history of how the book was written, you know, because I, uh, I, I did my PhD work at UCLA and, you know, like a lot of academics, I'm, I have a, a foot in a lot of worlds. And I um, was writing a lot of different things for a lot of different purposes, Um Part of my identity is also as a songwriter. Um, I, I go by famous letter writer. So that's one of my many names, my pop names. And um, so I was, I was actually uh, doing a lot with music. And I started writing a series of essays in the LA Review of Books about songwriting. And so that opened my mind uh, up to my uh, critical work in a new way. And I, I, I just kind of had this idea that what if I just came at um, critical writing and, and the essay tradition in a totally left field kind of way and, and like Warhol's mother, start cutting stuff up, right? Start reshaping the traditions I'm given and the, and the world around me a little bit. And that's what I did. I, I took some prior work I had done on people like James Joyce and I cut it up. And I took a lot of new work that I was doing on Warhol and, and visual arts, and I cut it up. And then I, I kind of went bigger, and I kind of just wanted to cut up the entire idea of a uh, book of essays 
And, you know, as you might have noticed, it has kind of jokey footnotes that are also kind of memoirs. It has um, sentences that rhyme. Uh, It has um, a lot of play throughout it. So that's kind of the tradition of it. It, 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 The book, I kind of lived it and then it wrote itself in a way. Yes. And references to the Smiths. Uh, That did not get lost on me. (laughs) Oh, yes. As a Smiths fan that I am. (laughs) Oh, yeah, there's a a lot of buried references in there. (laughs) There are. Yeah, so you've divided it up into sort of um, five chapters that have a number of pieces within them. I don't know if you want to talk anything about that structure at all before we sort of move into talking about some of the, you know, chapters. Yeah. But. Yeah, I mean, structurally, it, it kind of goes like this. It's it's new work for me, but also work that's super epigrammatic. And I would venture to say kind of like poetic prose that's kind of pushing the limits of what essays might look like in the 21st century. It does come out of a series out of Ohio State called uh, the 21st Century Essays. So I think that first section is a little bit of a salvo in that way. Um, And the second uh, section kind of returns to canonical figures, James Joyce, John Berryman, and um, John Donne, right? Very pop. We, we think of pop as John Donne, right? No, of course not. But the idea is that it kind of like, uh, it, it, it brings a pop lens to those works uh, as a kind of a survey of the tradition. Um, and then in section three, it does a kind of deep dive that's just very strange into the world of selfies, sonnets, connecting everyone from Philip Larkin to Amir Baraka to uh, Stevie Smith, speaking of the Smiths. And then section four is, is about film. So we, we kind of cover like art in the opening, literature in the second part, kind of like literature and self-representation and photography in the third. The fourth is about film. And the fifth is just this very strange kind of uh, I don't know, Wasteland 2.0 revision where lines kind of get rehearsed from the, the previous parts of it. So yeah, it, it, it is a pantry, you know, I have, I have a line that's, uh, the pantry is large, it's, you know, multitudes, and that's what I kind of aspired for. And you sort of start off and ground it in and return to it throughout this sort of this image, right, of Andy Warhol and his mother. And so can you talk a little bit about um, that image and what it was about that and, you know, that sort of start to this uh, and what really connects uh, Andy and his mother to the whole yeah. uh, Sheesh. I, I mean, this might end me up on a uh, counselor's uh, uh <laughs> Much like Morrissey says in Vauxhall and I uh, on a, a counselor's couch. But uh, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I think I'm interested in the book and you, you might have seen this at, in the just the idea of connection, pop as connection. I, I call it pop as infrastructure at times, but pop as, as before and beyond everything, uh, the way that we connect with each other. Pop investigates our incompleteness. We sing, we learn to sing by singing along. We join the chorus, right? And we all know this feeling, right? This is you singing as a teen. I'm imagining you sang as a teenager and, you know, learning, right? And, um, and that idea of completion, 
uh, I guess, really fascinated me with the figure of Andy Warhol because he's in many ways a kind of very solitary figure, right? Like we think of his repetitions, but we think of it coming out of this kind of total postmodern, right? Um, almost shell wigged figure who we don't think of as a, as a, as a real human in some ways. And he, he, he urged that view, right? That he was somehow all surface. So finding his mother, I think is actually like very simple and a weird way. And it kind of opened my brain to see her as a folk artist, as an immigrant in 1921, as somebody who was, um, uh, um, Madeline, as I say, to his white wigged, uh, uh, Usher, uh, fit Roderick Usher figure. Um, so yeah, seeing him, uh, in relationship to others helps us see pop as a means of, uh, coming to know each other for me. So in this first section, you sort of talk about that idea that you're looking at art. Um, and it's it's fascinating to me, the connect, you know, you, you go from Dylan, right? And Dylan winning the Nobel Prize. And then the next piece is on like hip hop, right? And the Norton right. Anthology. Um, so how do you see that um, connection between um, what you were, you know, what you just talked about with Warhol and his mother um, to to Kendrick Lamar and Dylan. And even, um, you mentioned, uh, I'm now I'm blanking on infinite jest. Um, Wallace. Right. Thank you. Right. <laughs> and Wallace. Right. So those connections and, and how do you see that sort of play out? Right. I mean, so when you ask that, it's almost like, but how could that possibly connect with X, Y, or Z? But I'd stress the word connect, right? Like the prose itself is kind of an experimentation in criticism and in the ways that things do in fact connect, right? And I think that's kind of the the gamble and the play and the experiential uh, uh, f- uh, fun of the of the project in many ways is to kind of venture that that pop is about connection. Okay, I established that, but then you can still say, but do they connect? And I think the answer to that is, is to say that I'm interested in having us see that it is more about then than now. These aren't separate entities. These aren't just these total isolated things, but in fact, they're all happening on a kind of a constellation or to go back to that word infrastructure, right? Where when we see Kendrick Lamar rapping and he's talking about behind a dirty uh, double mirror, they found me. Well, it is invoking St. Paul's notion of the dirty uh, mirror by which we conceive of God, right? And that's not that far from John Donne talking about the mirror, right? So those connections to me allow entryways into art that are infinite, infinite jests in some ways that allow the human experience to really map out in these broad constellations and to have conversations across time. And that's, that's, you know, that's obviously something I'm interested in from the prologue conversations that are happening 1921, 2021 pop is always only now for me. It's the past, it's the present, it's the future. It's, it's always happening. 
And I appreciate it. Like, so it's not only conversations with these figures, but it's also conversations with you, right? With other yous. Uh, and so can you talk a little bit about that, right? Like, I really liked um, talking, your references in this section, in that first section about talking about your friend, right? And being in right. LA. And so always thinking about how does this also connect to my future self or my past self yeah. kind of thing. That's actually that uh, no one's ever quite asked me about that. And that's that's super perceptive because you, what my point is, is that if the art is happening across time, well, it actually helps orient our own identity across time. And the book is very much, as you noticed, about my childhood, um, about going to the Philadelphia Art Museum and seeing Duchamp. Um, and it's also about my future and it's about my present and so in that way, the art allows me to, in many ways, tell my own story, right? And there could be a complaint lodged against the book, obviously, of why don't you mention this, this, or this artist? You mentioned 600, but you don't mention the other 200. And all I can say about this is it's my pantry. Do you know what I mean? It's my engagements with the things that mattered to me and helped orient me. And those things that I see connecting. So James Joyce links to Basquiat, links to 12 Angry Men. That's not a direct connection. <laughs> but in a weird way, it, it is my uh, reading and my kind of story linked into that. Um, so yeah, and obviously Dead Poets uh, about my friend Sam C., the um, late Yale professor who passed away. Um and died in a jail cell tragically. Uh, that's a very powerful centerpiece of this whole kind of theory of the book, which um, is in many ways a kind of elegy. And so the next, and I appreciate too the sort of images that you have um, throughout and the images that sort of start each section, um, especially I love that in, I'm looking at chapters two and three and the sort of juxtaposition of these images of two artists with their cameras. Right. Um, and this selfie. So can you talk a little bit about maybe the, those choices of the, you know, I mentioned the Andy Warhol with his mother image, but then in chapters two and the start of three, um, you have two images of, of um, artists sort of taking self portraits. So can you talk a little bit about those image choices? Yeah, I mean, just on a on a surface level, that they are very much moments of things happening in the past that are also happening now, right? So the very notion of selfie taking uh, in by uh, Giselle Freund in 1950, or by Philip Larkin, who it turns out had an archive of selfies. <laughs> Maybe that's not that surprising. Um, um, that is very much material that is also having embedded in it my very my very ideas and my very argument. Um, what is the argument about selfies that I'm making? Well, uh, let's back up. I think like pop is about the past. Um, pop is about homage. It's about elegy. It's about memory. But when it, it, it comes to selfies, what I thought was kind of interesting was that pop is also about like how we represent ourselves and repeat ourselves. So the selfie is this great kind of Warholian repetition, right? In this, in the sense of um, kind of enduring, and um, and those images really help 
help me uh, theorize that and serve as kind of um, tent poles throughout the book where this is all about the self kind of preserving the self in many ways. And by preserving it, exploring it, honoring it, letting it endure into the future, right? Art, art survives even though we don't. Um, so yeah, that's, that's one of the uh, big ideas there. I do have to say though, a lot of the choices, you know, finding Giselle Freund and, and that, that was very, in many ways, incidental, you know, that's the magic of, of writing where you have these projects going on. And I started to think of the book as much more multi-genre. Um, and when I did that, it just opened up a different uh, uh, way of looking at the material. Um, so not only am I using text, not only using songs, but hey, uh, an image and then the, the selfie image just kind of speaks to me and I see that that it's embedded in my work already. Yeah, so in bringing up the idea of the bring up the multi-genre, which um, I really as as a teacher, I appreciate that because I use it often in my classes. Um, but and I and I asked you about sort of the layout of the chapters, but I'd love for you to talk about just the layout of the text as well, right? Because you are playing with genre and you're thinking about text, and it was nice to actually see the book, like hold the book. Yeah, um, definitely. Because of that sort of the layout and the juxtaposition of the the narrative with the prose and the image and even the use of like font and that kind of thing. So right. can you like I'm guessing you were very thoughtful about this. And, and so can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, definitely. Um, the the idea once I knew that I was. You know, at some point you, re- you you realize that you're playing around with text, right? That that you go from, okay, I have a book of essays to, okay, this book is about to be published and I have a book of potentially weird, interesting, odd, attractive, aesthetically, you know, screwed up um, essays. <laughs> but that takes you to to make that next move, you know? And I, I, uh, I was happy Ohio State press and Mad Creek books, um, was very open to my revisions, was open to me pushing it further. Um, because I realized that the visual I'm talking about Andy Warhol. So you would need a book that at least, you know, move beyond blocks of prose to something else. So I'll give two examples. The overture was a very late edition, very late. And the overture is just really a small um, kind of poetic opening, which tracks Julia Warhol's journey to America. Um, the first line of the book is a country is closing its border. A country is closing its border. Um, so I shoved all those words together to form what appears to be a wall of text across the pages. Right. Um, that was me playing around with those designs. I'm trained as a modernist, uh, you know, name them E.E. E. Cummings, uh, the, the magazine Broom from the 1920s, you know, I mean, typographical experimentation. And so those, those kinds of choices, I felt like, okay, I see I'm starting to uh, get in control of this, you know, and, and, with, and I would encourage anyone listening it when you are writing when you start to do that stuff, it feels like decoration and it quickly becomes essential where you're like, this is the most important part of this book. (laughs) If I don't have a cross out 
here. You know what I mean? Like it's mm-hmm. it's super important because you realize that your ideas are are kind of running through these choices, and the ideas of the book become clearer to you, right? So that, that that's a big um, takeaway for me when I look at this. I appreciate you asking this because it is a book that um, goes, it has arguments. It has a lot of a constellation of arguments, but it also tries to make the prose pop. And that aesthetic quality, I think people often want to avoid, right? They want to just be like, oh yeah, so you have this book, it's a dissertation. And you're like, God, no, it's, it's not right? It's, it's something that you experience. And that's what readers have told me that it's quite an experience. And I like that. That's, that's, that's very cool. Um, yeah. But the, the other part is dead poets obviously has some of the most, uh, experimental parts. And one part I would point to that I was in, uh, it was influenced by, uh, Tahimba Jess's, uh, Olio is that, uh, he's interested in dual sonnets, sonnets that read across pages, um, playing around with that. And so I had this, I knew I wanted to use, uh, the sonnets at one part. And I was talking about Duchamp's, um, uh, conceptual work when you look through a door through two peepholes and all of a sudden you're like, Oh, I know how to do this. I'll make the sonnets feel like they're two peepholes. And pretty soon, you know, you've kind of, you've kind of in outer space, just playing around text <laughs> and that's a good place to be i don't know about you but i'm very busy and i don't have a lot of time to cook that's why i subscribe to factor eating better is easy with factors delicious ready to eat meals every fresh never frozen meal is chef crafted dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes you'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week including calorie smart protein plus and keto these are two minute meals Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off yes i actually i'm glad you brought up that section because i was going to ask you about it so (laughs) because i do and i love that um you sort of front load it like that is front loaded right so we get to see that that movement and we get to see the imagery and we get to sort of be knocked um around with that um and you know it's not this like you were saying it's not this afterthought or it's not at the end it's like we're we're, i'm going to start you out and let you know that we're going to continue down this road of experimentation right and play yeah i thought that was important um can you talk a little right um only because you return to him a lot i'd love for you to talk a little bit about leonard cohen yeah geez I I almost sound like I'd like you to talk about Leonard Cohen. Are you a Leonard Cohen fan? I not like I am a Smith fan, right? <laughs> not like when I what is it in your selfie section where wherever I was like, oh yes, the Smiths, like yeah, no, not like yeah, but um, but I did appreciate sort of the reference and I'm thinking about Hallelujah, but also thinking about like the performance and the sort of love of Leonard Cohen 
Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And uh, a, a colleague who retired from my department, he, he read my book and he said, you know, you, you have some high moments where you hit Joyce and others, but Leonard Cohen for me is, is the best because <laughs> I think people love Leonard Cohen and I don't think you, and this is a, a thing about pop maybe is that I don't think you always necessarily find people writing about, you know, Leonard Cohen, um, in a way that, that moves you and opens you up because it's such a personal, you know, a, a personal thing, like a bird on a wire. I mean, I sing that to my children. I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty personal. It's like a lullaby. But so when somebody can open that up, that, that almost feels like unexplored territory a little bit. And so when I was doing it, uh, uh in an extended part on late, um, Leonard Cohen, it felt very good. I felt like I was in control and it meant a lot. Um, but the, the one part that you mentioned in the opening really is the genesis of the book. And it was seeing a tribute concert to Leonard Cohen, um, in 2017. And, uh, uh, it began with a spoken word recording just piped out through the audience. And it was Leonard Cohen saying, let us teach sex in the home to parents. Let us threaten to join the USA and pull out at the last moment. And the audience was just laughing. I mean, he was just so in control. And there was just this sense of pop for me, of repetition in its most ritualized, beautiful form. And I think I, I needed to return to Leonard to kind of explore why that meant so much. And, uh, and yeah, I was, I was really glad I did. Uh, one of the other things you talk about and get at is film, right? And so one of your chapters looks at film and thinks about film and, and Virginia Woolf and her piece on film. So can you talk a little bit about that and the role of film and how you see that playing out with pop? Yeah. Uh, um, so my, my PhD work at UCLA was, uh, was based on film and was based on early cinema. And so pop for me and early cinema was always kind of a, a twinned star. Um, and I think one of the things that people forget is so, how revolutionary uh, pop felt or how early cinema felt for people. You know, a lot of people have done work on this about, you know, uh, why the French love Jerry Lewis, you know, people losing control, uh, people really feeling in their bodies, you know, this, this sense that of cinema as a, as a kind of almost dissolving social force where you're kind of bound to other people. And so I've always had that as, as one of the, the tools in my toolbox, if you will, where, where I knew early cinema's power. Um, and so part of my homage and elegy theory is that cinema, especially in the 21st century has been in throwback mode to recover these early senses of the cinema to recover that energy, to recover that power. And, um, that, that just, you know, and you, you see it in a lot of spaces. And one of the arguments I'm making is that nine 11 triggered that in some ways, because it was such a wounding, traumatic visual, uh, event. You, you talk about the post nine 11, but I, I really appreciated your connection to Hugo and extremely loud and incredibly close. Right. Um, I love, I, I love the, the Hugo, the, the text, right. That sort of picture book. So can you talk a little bit 
I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that, like looking at and juxtaposing those two and really thinking about them um, and that adaptation. Yeah. So if you think of 9-11 as somehow triggering a 21st century cinema, Hugo and Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close are these fascinating twin texts because Extremely Loud um, comes out as a 10-year anniversary, literal homage and commemoration uh, for 9-11. And Hugo does too in the same, uh, not announced in relation to 9-11, but it comes out in the same season as uh, as uh, Extremely Loud. So you have these two films and my point really is that one is much better at returning us to the power of cinema and all of the things that were wounded by 9-11. And it's not extremely loud and incredibly close, which, you know, is, is a, it's obviously a, a genius book. I, I wouldn't say the film is a genius. I'd say, I'd say the film is actually very um, allergic in a, in a lot of ways. It's kind of afraid of film. It's kind of obsessed with a, a very uh, narrow view and a narrow engagement with the city, which, you know, it kind of reads um, uh, the text and the novel in a, in a very specific way. But but Hugo is just absolutely brilliant. I mean, the, the graphic novel is brilliant, but, but the movie adaptation is almost perfect. And what's so interesting about it is that it's all about recovering this kind of uh, – urban sphere of collective solidarity, uh, fear, but also joy and magic. That's really like the inheritance of early cinema that we've, we've, you know, we are always in danger of losing and pop is always trying to bring it back and always trying to kind of recover it and save it for us. So I really appreciate the movie. I think it's really important film. Throughout, and you talked about this a little before, but I'd love for I'd love to come back to it too. Is how you see your you talk about um, growing up, you talk about your childhoods experiences you've had too, and how do you see that sort of impacting your relationship to pop and thinking about pop, right? So you have these sort of images, you have people you've encountered, right? Your DJs and that kind of thing, and your sister bringing you um, to school. So, so can you talk a little bit about that and how that sort of impacts and influences? Right. Uh, This is really a Philadelphia question. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I mean, no, really, because I I do think, you know, one of the, uh, one of my favorite photo choices in the book, which I got from the Getty archives is a stereoscopic uh, view of the Jersey shore in uh, the 18, I think it's from the 1890s. And, um, and what's, what's powerful about, I think, growing up in the Philadelphia area is that there's this deep reckoning with traditions of all sorts. You have the Catholic church, you have sports, you have Bruce Springsteen talking about Sandy and the 4th of July fireworks go, you know, blasting off. Um, you have the hip hop traditions, you have all, all sorts of, uh, you have the Philadelphia art museum, you have Thomas Eakins, you have kids rowing boats on the river. So, you know, very much, I do think the book is in homage to a childhood and a life spent in, in embedded in this, uh, rich American cultural sphere. Right. And it's one that brings you in contact with other people. And, and it's one that, um, 
always needs to be renewed, but it also needs to be articulated sometimes, right? I think it's really easy in the social media uh, 21st century age to uh, sentimentalize those things um, as some kind of past, but it's not like a living, breathing thing now. And I think what's what's interesting about a book that connects my past to my future, my present to my future, is that it kind of it, it suggests that it's living. It's a, it's beneath us, is above us. It's the air we breathe. I mean, this is what pop is, and um, that that's that's part of the memoir effort of it. And it's a tricky part, and it's not one that necessarily I tried to do. It just kind of bled out into the work itself, you know. And and you might not. I mean, I don't know what if you have an answer for this or not, but I also thought it was interesting because we've got the Pittsburgh with the Warhol, right. right? And the Philly, and you're sort of grounding in Philly, and often those are looked at as very different sides of Pennsylvania. Um, and so was that, did, how did that, or did you see that play out, or how did that play out um, yeah, in I, thinking about? Uh, I, I don't know if I, I thought too much about it as much as I did about thinking about Warhol as a child and myself as a child. I mean, I don't think you tend to think of Andy Warhol as anything other than a person who's just kind of born out of the American brain, like a Greek God emerging with his wig. And, you know, he just exists. He just is. And so once, once you think about Warhol as a art student making a painting or, uh, called, uh, the Lord gave me my face, but I can pick my own nose. Um, there's a lot of humor and compassion and sympathy and, you know, kind of love that you feel as you would for anyone who, you know, is a living, breathing person with a mother who had a colostomy bag. Can you imagine in the, in the 1930s, one of the first procedures, um, my grandmother also had one and I lived with her. Um, so we always will project ourselves on artists. I, 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 I can't be the only person who does this. <laughs> and, and when we do that, our world, I think, becomes somewhat mythologized, right? So Philly, for me, in that sense, um, took on a certain mythology. Um, and, you know, I'm at Moore College of Art with my sister. And the next sentence, I just mention offhandedly that, this is, you know, the the Society for Independent Artists connected with John Sloan. Um, this is connected to the world of early uh, American realists, right? And uh, and the, the ten, the women who were uh, connected to Philadelphia Arts, um, they were painting there. So you're on a time loop, you know. You're in a you're in a, you're in a kind of spatial temporal loop, uh, and that's kind of the feeling I wanted to achieve with the look into modernist art that way. You so, so you go through these like you sort of t- said the art the life the selfie the film and then this sort of wasteland 2.0 and I love I love that description of your final section yeah so I'd love for you to talk about like that like coming back because you do you talk like and you know bringing up like John Dunn and Kondo and, and all of these and Leonard Cohen so can you talk about that sort of returning and those choices and and why uh, you know and what you were trying to do with that sort of remnants and scraps yeah it's very much is it's called remnant scraps waste pops postscript um 
you know, I'll start with the line that is on the back of my book, which is, um, what are these fragments we've Jersey shored against our ruin? I mean, that brings together a, my Philadelphia answer, Jersey Shore, (laughs) B, T.S. Eliot talking in the wasteland about the fragments we've shored against our ruin. Um, But also it brings together uh, a third element, which which is, you know, a more positive reading of what is usually seen as Eliot's wasteland, which is that we do very much shore together. We do bring together these fragments and that isn't necessarily a invitation to a kind of postmodernist despair, but it's actually an invitation to seeing ourselves as kind of like a, a, a mandala of sorts, uh, a kind of a, a, a broken unity. Um, I'm sounding like Leonard Cohen right now. Like this is pro- I'm probably quoting Leonard Cohen, <laughs> but I, I think that's really important because once you do that, you need a certain earnestness to do that. You know, not many people will try something that they're like, yeah, this is wasteland 2.0. People would be like, Oh God, like give me a break. (laughs) But what that means in this book is you literally, um, sample parts from the book and you somehow distill them down to these very strange essences. And, um, and the hope is that, you kind of see the book replay in a, in a very powerful and new way. Um, one of my favorite parts from that I'll just mention is just the use of erasure. And I was reading, um, uh, I don't know her name, a, a great Elliot scholar offhand. It's in the back of the, uh, the, uh, Elliot wasteland that was edited by my advisor, Michael North at UCLA. And it's a, um, it's a great piece on, uh, pounds, revisions to the wasteland and how, what things he didn't like, you know, and he kind of hated adjectives and and things like that. And Elliot kept a lot of them, but he also like, didn't always agree with all of his edits. And so, you know, one thing that I do is that I, I just repeat some of his, uh, lines. And one of them is, um, you know, above the antique mantle was displayed, as though a window gave upon the Selvin scene, the change of Philomel. And then right after that, I write bird on a wire and yeah, that's Leonard Cohen, but it's also getting at the idea of like pop culture is very much about, um, these poetic lyrical connections, but it's also about erasure, you know, and, and the book is about remembering the things that have been erased Warhol, Warhol's mother, um, Andy Warhala, the immigrant son, things like that. And Warhol's um, sister, right? Like, I, I found that really sort of powerful, yeah. like thinking of that image of his mother before coming to America, holding this baby who, you know, dies. Um, right. It, right. And you do that. And that's one of the things you sort of return to in this remnants right. section, right? And that imagery. Yeah. I mean, and that becomes very much, um, you know, the, I call it the Pieta of Slovakia that she's standing holding the dead child, but within one page, uh, Warhol, I mean, I feel like I'm giving away the book, but in, within <laughs> one page Warhol's mother, which is, you know, a, 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 a kind of inevitable moment, which feels really beautiful is on a cross being, having her sides pierced and she bleeds cream of mushroom soup. 
Um, okay, that will sound weird to anyone hearing this, but, <laughs> but, but it works. <laughs> but it works, and you know, writing that—that that didn't. It's not like I wrote that, and I—that was the last thing I wrote, and I was like, period, save, document, <laughs> publish. Um, that was something that I had written uh, a few months before as part of a, a poetic interlude in another manuscript. So, I mean, you know, writing is such a weird weird uh journey and an act of revision and erasure and the stuff that lasts and endures you keep and it finds its place like it needs to be placed somewhere you know no i have to say that i uh, you know in in the reference again coming back to like the physical physicalness i i really like the physicalness of anything right but like that that what you're talking about that piece that I have to flip the page to get to yeah. the next, like that. I really, I really love that. Um, the juxtaposition of that and the, the really thinking about moving from like turning a page into the, that image of the, um, the child in her arms and the Pieta. So, yeah. Yeah. There's yeah. something deeply satisfying about the material world that we do lose with the PDF text. <laughs> <laughs> It's interesting because I the, uh, the book I just read um, and did an interview with right before this was very so it, very different, but also one where having that text in your hand and being able to uh, move and really look at the imagery in it was really important. And I felt like for yeah. this, it, it was very much like having it um, helped, yeah, or really made that connection. Yeah, I, I will say that um, when people have read the book or people get the book, you know, sometimes, um, and I'm sure all authors go through this. People are like, Oh, I, I haven't finished it yet. And they like just got it. And I almost wanted to be like, Hey man, just take it to your meditation, like a page a day, <laughs> you know, because it's an experience and you, mm-hmm. you, 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 you curate that experience. Um, I just put on a, a, a big pop show using some Warhols from the Warhol Foundation at, at SUNY Plattsburgh. And it's like curating. It's like somebody going through a gallery, you know, like you don't want somebody to run through the gallery and leave. You want them to linger and take wrong turns. And so the book, I hope, has that feeling that it kind of um, it achieves a little bit of a what I call unknowing, you know, that you kind of are it's coming sideways at you. I, I do have to ask to at the end you don't you don't end with your chapter five you end with notes right you sort of bring us back to notes and so I just wanted to ask about that choice in doing that right because you could have just left us with the text as it is right. um, but you also bring it back to that and and so what can you talk a little bit about that yeah. choice? Cream of mushroom. We should have been left with cream of mushroom, but instead we're left with like Paul's letter to the like Thessalonians or something. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I, I think it, it, it was done in the final stages and the idea was, does this book need notes? You know, and you try to be a responsible citizen of the world and be like, okay, I'm going to do my boring notes now. And once I started setting out on it, they just grew so weird and it became one more weird space to invade a lot of these ideas that it became like, 
oh, I'll just like make the notes this place where if people actually do read it, they're like half memoir, half literary criticism, half literary history. And, um, and it ends with this, uh, with this note that literally points you back to the very beginning of the book with an image, which is kind of a throwaway image, but it's so important. It's William Carlos Williams looking at a rug while tying his shoes and looking at the worsted flowers on the rug and the shadows of his hands on the rug. And all of a sudden it becomes a scene where the shadows are nightingales and it's about surfaces and depth. And it becomes a whole meditation on that moment. And I, and you know, the final words are, um, are we the nightingales? Are we the nightingales? Do you think? And you know, it just felt kind of like it made sense. I don't know if it did. (laughs) It did. I'm also like, uh, along with the Smiths, I'm a big William Carlos Williams fan, you know, and it's probably like living in uh, that, you know, that East Coast thing. I did my research on ideal readers who tend to be Smiths and William Carlos Williams fans. Reel Around so, the Fountain was not mentioned in the book. Uh, you know, any t- I, yes, I always look for the, you know, him Smith's references in every book. There should be some in every book. <laughs> <laughs> so we've been talking a while about this. Are there, um, I don't know if there's any last things about the book itself you want to talk about, or I always like to ask if there's, like, if you want, what you're doing, working on now, right? Is there, yeah. you know, is it just this? Is there something else you're working on that you want to sort of talk and share? Sheesh, when you when you do a book, it kind of consumes your life. And you can't imagine even getting out of bed next. But, um, but you know, this book has had an interesting life. So I have an album called uh, Warhalla, believe it or not, a record uh, that my partner, who goes by Rue, and I'm M.I., um, made and we're famous letter writer and it's got it got nice reception we had a song on npr songs of the week back in november which was like great i mean it's kind of you you meet people from around the world with music now i mean that's the greatest thing about music versus books music is like here's my two minute song and people in madrid really like it and So um, the, the music has been like a really nice uh, exploration of some of, I think, the ideas uh, that are in the book. And um, it's, it's, it's been fun having that kind of paired uh, um, package, you know, when it comes to it. So, but we are going back to record more um, uh, in the nearish future. That, that was out of the Pencil Factory in Brooklyn where we recorded that. And our next one... Um, hopefully we'll be out of LA. So that, that should be fun. Um, but yeah, I do. I, I have a lot of different weird projects in order. Some that have these elements like memoirish things of, of, of childhood in Philadelphia. Um, I have a work that, uh, is on, um, early cinema and visual culture that I would like to come at in a more sideways way. And I think that's, you know, I don't know if this is, the new books network is for encouraging people, but you know, I think that's, that's something that no one ever really told me was that you can do work, but you know, you can come at it in new ways and discover new aspects and make it not just more readable, but maybe you can make it less readable, (laughs) but you can make it more dynamic and live and breathe and have blood and flesh and a soul. Uh, You can do that. 
And so I'm, I'm kind of in the process of, of figuring out what that means. And that's fun. Well, it has been really wonderful talking yeah, to you about gosh. this. Yeah. Like, it's like we, Philly I can, reunion here. <laughs> I know. I can, <laughs> yes. There's things like that I could talk about forever. And like, uh, should we talk yeah. about Patty Smith since you're on the Smiths? I mean, I'm a huge Patty Smith. I do Smith love fan. her too. <laughs> She's from my neighborhood. <laughs> She's a fabulous writer. Yeah. Um, and poet and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and speaking of her, I would say that, like, you know, I think there was a little bit of her influence with the M train and 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 just kids and things like that. Just as in terms of like art and memory, you know, mm-hmm. like how they go in hand and how we orient our lives and live with these works. And you know, we love these works, and that's that's what the book, my book, is really about. I think it's about the work that shaped me. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think I would say it as for me as a reader that really I I thought I saw that come through. Right. Like, what are those moments or turning points or texts? And and I use texts in the largest form of the word. Right. Um, That have shaped um, these ideas. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you reading it. I do have to say it's always really nice. No, it is. I mean, it just means so much. Well, but it's been great. So again, this is um, Michael Devine, whose book, A Warhol's Mother's Pantry, is available um, in everywhere, right? Everywhere, <laughs> Local yeah. bookstores, wherever you want to find it. But thank you again for talking with me for New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.